Hey, good morning. Hey, how many of you like pie? Yeah. Wow. What kind of pie? What's your favorite kind of pie? Blueberry. What else? Blueberry. Pecan. Okay. Banana cream. Keep going. Keep going. Okay. Okay. Imagine this. Imagine this. Walking into a room and there laid on the counter are all those kinds of pies and more. And no, I'm not talking about heaven. I'm talking about prayer, praise, and pie. That's going to happen next Sunday uh, back here at church at 6 o'clock. We'll actually end our time together downstairs with that room full of pies so that we can get together and enjoy that time. We're going to start up in this room where we're going to gather as the Hillcrest Church family for some family time together. Uh, Kids, parents... Grandparents, this multi-generational, beautiful time together as a church family where we will uh, literally be around the Thanksgiving table, sharing about what God has been doing in our lives, what we're thankful for, who we're thankful for, and those kinds of things. So encourage you to come on out for prayer, praise, and pie next Sunday at 6 o'clock, one of the highlights for me in the year. Well, my name is Fred, one of the, the pastors here, and about a year and a half ago, after driving older cars for most of our married life, and uh, in fact, even being down to one vehicle here for a while before we did this, we, we saved up money over a long period of time, and Jennifer and I decided we were going to buy a new car. Our d- kids were now adults, they were off the payroll, they were all on their own. And so we bought a 2022 GMC Terrain. And it's really nice. It stays really clean. There's no, no ketchup squirted on the ceiling, no French fries or eaten apple cores found under the seats after a few months, all of those kinds of things. And I got to tell you, one of the things I'm most excited about is the transmission, the exhaust, the heater, the air conditioner, the lights, the seats, everything works at the same time. It is fantastic. Well, a couple of months after getting that car, we had an opportunity to go and pick up our grandson, Cooper. And uh, what do you mean, uh-oh? <laughs> so we went and picked up Cooper, and we were heading off for some really good Nani, Papa, and Cooper time. <clears throat> and we were driving down Fish Hatchery Road, and I'm just this, in my happy place, And all of a sudden, I hear some funny noises coming from behind me in the car seat. Things like, and I thought, what is that noise? And all of a sudden, I realized that's Cooper back there. Because you see, right before we picked him up, he had a big bottle of formula. And so I realized that he was back there choking, coughing, retching, and projectile vomiting that bottle of formula all over my brand new, shiny, beautiful, perforated leather seats car. And there was no good place to pull over. (laughs) So there I was. I just kept driving, hearing the same sounds more and more until I could finally pull over. And, uh, And when I did, I opened that car door and my heart was tested. 
And this test takes us back to last week where Brian Phipps, who is one of our All Nations partners here at Hillcrest, he preached through the first half of Luke chapter 16 and ended where Jesus left his disciples to ponder and process Luke 16, verse 13, which says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so as I opened that back door, there was the test. Am I a slave to money and things and new shiny cars? Or... Am I a servant of God being concerned about our grandson, Cooper, that he was sick? In that moment, am I really thankful for the fact that, uh, wow, Cooper is such a blessing to so many. And can I be thankful for the privilege that it is for someone to call me Papa? And to be honest, I kind of failed the test at first. (laughs) But thankfully, after... Not too long, a few minutes, I experienced some good spiritual transformation of my heart, and I knew everything was going to be just fine with Cooper, and I knew that somehow I'd figure out how to get that out of the perforated leather seats. And so today, as we pick up in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 14, we see that Jesus has put some eavesdropping Pharisees to a similar test with his teaching on money. And that's going to take us to our our big idea today as we go through this. The big idea is the love of your heart has eternal significance. The love of your heart has eternal significance. And as we unpack this, we're going to see three things today. First of all, we can justify ourselves all we want, but God knows our hearts. Second, love of money will bring everlasting torment and anguish. And number three, The call will be to examine your heart now before it's too late. So before we jump in, let's let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us so much that you sent Jesus to come and die for us, that we might, through him, by your grace, know you and love you and be assured of an eternity with you. But but Father, thank you for passages like this that really cut to the heart, help us to look in. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand what you would have for us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's jump right in in uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 14. Luke writes, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is uh, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Quite a passage right there just so far. We got the other half to go, but quite a lot there to unpack. So point number one today is we can justify ourselves all we want, but God knows our heart. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I find myself justifying myself to myself and to others around me quite a bit. It's usually something like, well, you know what? I've really worked hard today, and so I'm going to have that third bowl of ice cream because I deserve it. Or I didn't deserve that speeding ticket because I was only speeding a little bit. Kind of hits close to home for me these days. Um, or maybe, it, maybe for me it sounds like this. With all the work that we're doing around the house, I need to buy some new tools. Woohoo! Because we've got to get the job done right, right? Yeah, and part of it is I just want to have that satisfaction of having a lot of shiny red tools in my garage. And, and maybe there's a hint of, hey, I want to impress the guys when they come over. I can justify myself all I want, but God knows my heart. So back to verse 14, it says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. They heard all these things that Jesus was teaching about the love of money. And these Pharisees were the esteemed religious leaders and teachers of their day. They had great prominence and influence in the culture And the Pharisees were wealthy. And here Luke minces no words. He calls the Pharisees out as lovers of money. And therefore, from what we heard last week, if if someone is a lover of money, they are a hater and a despiser of God. So verse 15, and he, Jesus, said to them, the Pharisees, and, and he's saying this in response to their ridicule towards him, He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So how were they justifying themselves? I got a a couple of ideas. Up to this point, as we've been reading through Luke, Jesus has been hammering these Pharisees on their hypocrisy and their arrogance All the way chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and now in chapter 16. And so they had to continue to justify themselves before the people out of their pride. They had a reputation. And they had to keep justifying themselves out of their fear of losing their income from the people and their power and their influence over the people. It's all about money and power. So they ridiculed Jesus, hoping to embarrass him, to discredit him. Jesus, this uneducated, impoverished, homeless, roaming teacher. And they wanted to try to draw some of these people, some of Jesus' disciples, back to themselves. And the irony is not lost here that these religious leaders were, in fact, refuting the teachings of the very Messiah that they believed and taught would come one day to save his people. All to make themselves look good before men. And this was indeed an abomination in the sight and in the very presence of God himself. And God knew their hearts, right? That's what Jesus said. And with the Pharisees' reputation as experts and enforcers of the law, 
Jesus went to the law directly to reveal to his audience and to try to reveal to the Pharisees just how far their hearts were from God. Verse 16, Jesus continues, The law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. We'll come back to that phrase in a minute. Verse 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Again, these Pharisees, they were the experts and the enforcers of the law. They kept hounding on Jesus for things like healing on the Sabbath. We've seen that multiple times. And Jesus was about to turn the law back right back onto them to help reveal their hearts. Now, real quickly, I just want to talk about the law and the prophets, what Jesus is talking about here. The law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai way back in history as God delivered the Israelites from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, helped them to escape through, across and through the Red Sea, and then they were headed out towards this promised land of Israel. And then over a long period of time, God sent a series of prophets to the people warning them of their sin, urging them to turn back to God. That's the law and the prophets. And just real basically, I'd say the law and the prophets have three basic purposes. The first of all, first is to proclaim the glory and holiness of God and reveal God's standard of this holiness for us. We sang two songs about praising God for his holiness this morning. Secondly, the the law and the prophets were to show us that we, by our human sinful nature, are incapable of following the law perfectly and are therefore not holy. And thirdly, to declare that God would send a savior to rescue his people from their sin and to transform their hearts to fully love God and love others. That was the law and the prophets. And then came John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus. Jesus, who has come as the salvation of God. And in doing that, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophecies. And, And when Jesus came, and is now true today, the kingdom of God is at hand. And in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus himself summarized the law in two commandments that are the foundation of all the law. This is Matthew twenty-two thirty-five. He says, and one of them, uh, it was actually one of the Pharisees, who's also a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. He said, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So these Pharisees were lovers of money. Though they claimed to be experts in the law, Jesus knew that their hearts were far from loving God and far from loving their neighbors. So back to verse 16 here. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Now, what in the world does that mean? Everyone forces his way into it. It's a known difficult phrase to translate. 
And some of you may even see a note in your Bibles that gives kind of an, uh, another translation, another possible translation, maybe something like everyone is forcefully urged into it or everyone is being pressed to enter it, enter into this gospel of the good news. And the best way that it makes sense to me is that Jesus is saying that because of the law and the prophets, which the Pharisees claim to believe and follow, and because of their fulfillment in the coming of Jesus, now everyone is forced to choose. To choose whether to accept the good news of the kingdom as lovers of God or to reject it as they were doing as lovers of money. Now, if anybody knows me, you're going to find, you, you know, or you'll find quickly that I hate making decisions. I am a classic overthinker. I am inflicted with the paralysis of the analysis. And if there's anything I can do to, to kick the can of a decision down the road to avoid having to face it now, uh, I, I, will, I will unfortunately try to do that. And yet sometimes we can't. And no decision is greater than a decision between life and death. I've had the privilege to walk alongside a few people who found themselves deciding between treatment or no treatment. Between more time on earth or time to say goodbye to their families and be welcomed into heaven and in those moments, those dear friends of, of ours uh, were forced to make a choice. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Because now that the law is fulfilled and the gospel has been preached, we too today still have to make a choice. To choose either to love God and love others or to love money and the world instead. And Jesus is urging us and pressing us to choose him. Heavy stuff with which Jesus has confronted these Pharisees, but he isn't finished with them yet. After pointing to the law, Jesus now gives them an example from the law, an example of something that they have been breaking and justifying themselves before others. Verse 18, it says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, the context here is pretty important. It's that the Pharisees uh, were justifying what, what we call today a no-fault divorce, meaning they were justifying that they could divorce their wives for any reason at all. And they were appealing to the law to try to justify it. Literally, if their wife was a bad cook or she burned his foot or if maybe the external beauty had begun to fade over time or because of anything else that they did that brought displeasure to their husband, the Pharisees would then go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, the law where Moses wrote into the law about giving your wife a certificate of divorce when the husband, quote, found some indecency in her. These Pharisees were making a mockery of marriage. 
Marriage being this most intimate of all human relationships. This beautiful relationship that was invented in the first place to one day point the world to the most beautiful relationship between Jesus as the groom and the church, us, as his bride. So here in Luke 16, where these money-loving Pharisees are ridiculing Jesus for his teaching on money and divorce and justifying themselves before men, Jesus essentially tells them, hey, I know your heart. Let me give you an example. You are appealing back to the law in which Moses allowed for divorce in rare instances to justify the divorce of your wives for any reason at all. And so while you are justifying, using this law to justify yourselves before men, you are still breaking the seventh of the Ten Commandments the Lord gave to Moses. You shall not commit adultery. And that is an abomination in the sight of God. There are so many ways that we justify ourselves before ourselves and before others around us. But God knows our hearts. And before I, I, I move on, I, I wish I had more time, but I want to address this, this issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage for just a minute. Because I, I realize in a, in a room like this, there are, there are probably several that have been divorced and some even remarried. And then this is a, a very serious and a very tender issue for sure. One that's uh, oftentimes wrapped up in, in a lot of pain uh, for the people who are divorced, for their families around them, for their children. And it's also a highly disputed issue. Some saying that divorce and, and marriage is never right. Others saying it's okay in circumstances. And others still really saying there's, there's no biblical or moral issues with it at all. And, and that debate is for another time. But today, whether you have been through a divorce or maybe you think back and you realize, wow, I kind of justified myself to do something that I knew in my heart wasn't right. Or in some way you've regret this path that you've taken, I encourage you to talk with someone you trust, a friend, a life group leader, one of us pastors. And, and, and it, as you process this, I encourage you to move towards Jesus. Next week we're going to learn about a God of mercy who forgives. And a God who urges us to forgive others. And a God who gives hope hope for the future in Christ. And so no matter what we are struggling with today, wherever we are trying to justify ourselves in our temptations to love money, sex, and power instead of God, friends, there is grace, there is mercy, there is forgiveness, restoration, and hope in Jesus. And as good as that is for us today, These Pharisees in Luke chapter 16 did not have ears to hear, and Jesus went one more step. He's still not done with them, and he told them a parable about a rich man to help them understand our second point, which is their love of money will bring everlasting torment and anguish. So let's pick up in verse 19 and read this parable. Says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. 
And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Let's stop there for a second. We see that the rich man had all the luxuries of life. Anything he, he wanted, and if there was something that came up he didn't have, he just had to ask and somebody would get it for him. So that's the rich man. And then we have this guy named Lazarus. Not to be confused with the brother of Mary and Martha that Jesus rose from the dead in John chapter 11. But he's probably crippled, as it says he was laid at the gate. He's probably got a form of leprosy with all these sores on his body. And he was just really at the bottom of life. Being crippled, there was no way at that time that he could really earn an income. Having leprosy meant that he was probably not, uh, not in any sort of community or support around him. And he was left to maybe get scraps of food off the floor of the rich man. Quite a contrast. Well, the rich man died. And not because he was rich, but because he was a lover of money and therefore not a lover of God, he found himself in Hades, which is a reference to hell. And the poor man died, and not because he was poor, but because he was a lover of God, despite all of the suffering that he had gone through in his life, he went to Abraham's side, sometimes called Abraham's bosom, a reference to heaven. And we pick up in verse 24, it says, And he, the rich man, called out then, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So I think we learn a couple of things here about the rich man. I'm going to list five things that we've learned. Number one, we learned that he was a Jew. He recognized Abraham and called him Father Abraham. And Abraham called him child. It seems that perhaps in his lifetime, he presumed that just because he was a child of Abraham by heritage, that that was all that he was going to need, that he was all set for all eternity. So number one, we learned he was a Jew. Number two, we learned he was in anguish. This is not a good place to be. Number three, we also see that he recognized and knew Lazarus by name. Very interesting. Fourth, he was still ordering people around. Hey, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to come down here trying to meet his needs, his own needs, his own comfort. And number five, the rich man learned that there was no escape from his anguish. 
Though he could see Lazarus and, and Abraham in the place of comfort, no one was coming to help him ever. And there was no getting out of this place ever. His love of money brought him everlasting torment and anguish. Now, to be honest, I kind of drew the short straw by uh, preaching on this passage about money, divorce, and hell, all in the same passage. So next time I'm asked to preach, I'm going to do a little bit more checking before I say yes. (laughs) But I do want to mention that the doctrine of hell is here. Clearly, we see that hell is a real place of real torment. It's a consequence of a heart that does not love God and does not love others. And there's some things in this parable. Sometimes you've got to be careful with parables, but some things that may not point directly to what heaven and hell will be like. For example, this idea that, that people in both places can see and communicate with another, that, that uh, most people think that that is not what it's going to be like. But just not too long ago, David uh, preached through Luke chapter 13 and went more extensively into the doctrine of hell. And I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't already uh, to learn more. But I do want to mention it here. So back to uh, the parable. We're going to continue with verse 27. Now that we know what the, the stuff about the rich man. Verse 27, And the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So now we're starting to see some change in the rich man's heart. I mean, he is still telling Abraham to tell Lazarus what to do, but it seems like he might be thinking of him somebody other than just himself, maybe for the first time. And he doesn't want his brothers to suffer the same fate that he is. I remember back to my college days as I was kind of new to, to faith in Jesus when people referred to their faith as a fire insurance policy or a get-out-of-hell-free card, to use a Monopoly reference. And while true faith in Jesus understands and believes that Jesus has taken on himself this punishment and this torment that we deserve because of our sins... In our place, a heart that is looking just for an escape from hell is still not a heart that loves God. But that's where I think the rich man was. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they, your brothers, have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear from Moses. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And with this, we see the final change in the rich man's heart. He has realized that his ignoring of Moses and the prophets in his lifetime was the reason that he was now suffering in agony. He had failed to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he realized now that he had failed to love his neighbor, a poor, crippled 
leper named Lazarus who was laid by his gate begging for food. And he knows his brothers. He knows his brothers were doing the same. And so he now knows and understands that they need to repent. And this word repent simply means to turn, to turn away from one thing and turn towards another. The rich man knows that the only way that his brothers will one day find themselves welcome to Abraham's side is to turn away from their love of money and turn towards the Lord. So the rich man thinks, oh, well, maybe by sending someone who would rise from the dead, maybe that would wake them up. It would shake them enough to help them understand the need to repent from their love of money, not just for fire insurance, but to turn towards and transform their hearts to a loving God and to loving their neighbor, to experience true joy and happiness in their lives, and to be assured of spending eternity not in agony, but in comfort and peace in the very presence of God. And in both the conclusion of the parable and as a foreshadowing of what was to come in real life as Jesus approached Jerusalem, Jesus reveals the true hardness of heart of the rich man, his brothers, and of the Pharisees who moments before ridiculed him before the people. Verse 31 again, Jesus or the, uh, Abraham said to the rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Unless those lovers of money turned to the scriptures and read them through transformed hearts, not even a resurrection would make a difference. So where does that leave us today? As we close and as I invite the worship team to come on up, just urge us all to examine our hearts now before it's too late. If you are experiencing your heart being lured away from love of God and love of others, if you are lured away by money, sex, power, or whatever else, and you find yourselves excusing this, justifying it before yourself, before others, sometimes even before God, I urge you to take heart and, and confess, which just means be honest with yourself, be honest with God, and turn. Turn towards God. Ask God to forgive you, to transform your heart and be so wrecked by his grace and his mercy that you have no choice to but find more joy in him than anything else in this world that's competing for your heart. Truly love the Lord your God. I'd also uh, urge you to turn towards his word for an everyday meeting with God. The good news of the kingdom of God is in there, and it's in there for you. Turn towards a relationship with God in desperate and dependent prayer as he wants to hear from you, and he wants to speak into your life through his spirit, through his word. 
and turn towards community with others who will walk alongside you in your faith journey and turn towards your neighbor and love your neighbor as yourself. Whether that's literally your neighbor or it's a friend or it's a coworker or it's a family member, as you go about your everyday life, Pray, watch, and step into opportunities to to have a conversation, to lend a hand, to meet a need, to offer to pray, and to share the love and good news of Jesus before it's too late. Let's pray. Our Father, if we are honest with ourselves, we are guilty of being lured away from you by the things of this world and of justifying ourselves before men. We know you know our hearts. And Father, for me, as frightening as that is, help me help us all to see our hearts more clearly, to stop our excusing, and to turn towards you to find more and more joy in Jesus and to more fully love you and love our neighbors around us. We pray in Christ's name.